Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Jeff Fjertzig, the director of The Devil and Daniel Johnston, to discuss the late singer-songwriter and Austin, Texas legend, the line between genius and madness, the lo-fi movement, and the making of one of the all-time great rock documentaries. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today, a friend of the show is returning. Jeff Fiertzig is here to talk about his film, The Devil and Daniel Johnston. Jeff, welcome. Hey, Nate. How you doing? Doing well. Great to have you back. Thanks. Great to be back. Love the show. And, uh, and so the film has, it's been out for, what, 16 years now, 14 years? And it's taken on a weight. Uh, you, uh, IndieWire named it the number one best music documentary of the 21st century, which, given the explosion of music documentaries in the 21st century, was pretty heady praise. So, congratulations. Yeah, well, thank you. I I appreciate that. It was nice. To, you know, we've been on a lot of lists uh, pretty steadily since the film came out, but uh, it now keeps coming up uh, closer to that number one slot, and we like that. Yeah, it's good, and and I want to read a little bit of what they said in the um, uh, article where they awarded you the number one slot. It says, a reminder that true artistry is extremely rare to come by and often impossible to survive. Deeply soulful, uniquely poetic, and darkly disturbed, the story of songwriter Daniel Johnston is as heartbreaking and captivating as they come. I cannot disagree. What drew you to Daniel Johnston? What, What made it? I feel like this was a story that had to be told and you were the person that was going to tell it. Well, you know, it, 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 many things <laughs> drew me to Daniel. It was, uh, I guess it was around 84, 85. And, um, you know, in the underground, he started bubbling up with um, cassette tapes on Stress Records, uh, which was this little uh, indie label out of Austin, Texas. And, you know, the only way to get those things was uh, through a fanzine. So, you know, before the Internet, we had a pretty thriving 
fanzine world all around the world, um, not just here. And there was a great community of people and uh, everybody was exchanging ideas and writing criticism and, you know, just sharing their fandom. And Daniel really put himself on the radar and he caught my attention. I sent my, I think it was like $3. He'd send it off to Austin, Texas, this PO box. And there was this guy, Jeff Tartikoff, this little Jewish guy who I became friends with. We, we became pen pals and he sent me these tapes and um, you know, they were handmade and you had Daniel's very primitive artwork on the cover. And then, um, you know, you pop them on and, you know, I was overwhelmed. I mean, here, here was this, this incredible prolific songwriter recording himself uh, in a basement and he'd written, you know, so many incredible songs of unrequited love great theme and he also you know recorded himself uh i should say he recorded his mom yelling at him and he would put that as little snippets between the songs and then he was also incredibly funny and he you know there's an incredible piano player which is unfortunately very overlooked in his story at the moment <laughs> but yeah incredible piano player and then sometimes it was some primitive uh, guitar playing so, uh, you know, I became fascinated with him because he was, uh, he was kind of mythical. He certainly didn't come to, I was living in Jersey at the time, so he didn't tour and that made you want him even more. But, uh, you know, he, he created this incredible universe, uh, of his town and his life. It was very autobiographical and, um, you know, he'd fallen in love with this girl named Lori and she married the local undertaker. You know, at that point in time, we, I believed and my friends believed that, you know, he'd made it all up. We didn't even know if Lori was real or if The Undertaker was real. But anyway, he'd written, you know, about a hundred songs about her. <laughs> and uh, I became, you know, I guess the word would be obsessed. And I started collecting uh, articles about him and keeping a file on him because I, I loved uh, not only his music and his art, but I, I really loved his story. And it's a compelling story and, and a unique one. And since the theme of the show is, you know, how popular music happens, I want to talk a little bit about something that the critic Robert Criscow coined and called semi-popular music, which is something that's been a fascination of critics and fans for a long time, which is music that doesn't quite ever break through to the mainstream and yet impacts the mainstream, and impacts the greater culture. And to me, Daniel is like sort of a definitive semi-popular artist and somebody, and especially thanks to your film, you know, like when you go on YouTube now and you look up Daniel Johnson videos, almost every video has several hundred thousand views. And so his impact has sort of been like a, a time-delayed bomb that that's just keeps going off and keeps reaching more and more people because it's such a personal connection. It's not made for huge arenas. You know, it's, it's not Garth Brooks or something that's, that's just going to rock the house for 30,000 people at a time, but it seems to reach people in a really powerful way. And, the underground you reference in the eighties is a, is a topic we've hit on the show multiple times. And Daniel, talk a little bit about how he slipped into the Austin scene just as that scene was getting national attention from MTV. Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 once again, back then, it, it was very. It was two things going on. You know, there was there was like a corporate capitalist structure. Um, which had had and probably still does have a stranglehold on popular culture. And that's just the way it is. 
so, you know, outside of that, uh, there was a thriving independent underground scene. And, you know, the, the word alternative, which I don't like, uh, didn't exist. And people operating uh, in, the, in those margins, you know, there was not really a giant aspiration to be a part of that popular culture. And it rarely happened. So it, just, it was like in a vacuum. And it was very, very regional. And um, at various points in time, certain cities kind of dominated. So, um, you know, at a certain point, New York dominated with punk, which sort of came out of Cleveland. You know, and then uh, San Francisco had its own scene. L.A. had its own scene. Then it moved to Athens, Georgia at a certain point. And, um, you know, that spawned a little bit later on, like the Incredible Elephant Six uh, collective scene. That was amazing. And, uh, you know, back to Austin, they had a thing going on. Austin was happening at, at, at this time. And, you know, it's also totally exaggerated that quote-unquote MTV came to town. So let's just put that into context. So there was MTV, no doubt about it. And um, they also had a little show on MTV called The Cutting Edge, which aired once. Okay. I should say the Austin episode aired once. So it wasn't like Daniel was in heavy rotation on MTV. <laughs> it just it sounds that way now, but it, it just didn't happen. So if you were happened to have caught the cutting edge that one night and caught the Austin episode, there was a snippet of Daniel Johnston, which was great, but the world didn't get exposed to Daniel from MTV. That just didn't happen. Um, but, uh, it made some noise in Austin, which was great. You know, and Austin had this, uh, local pride at the time of having a lot of great singer, songwriter, guitar singers. So Daniel was sort of a fly in the ointment. And uh, he pissed off everybody because he won, uh, I think, best songwriter and best folk artist in the Austin Chronicle. You know, back when there used to be a thriving independent media scene in every city with a good arts paper, which, of course, doesn't exist anymore. So, but yeah, Daniel made a lot of noise. It was great. But, you know, once again, he didn't, he didn't, you know, like, like the ZD Top quota didn't go nationwide at that point, you know. <clears throat> Yeah, he, 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 but the thing that's fascinating to me about that is that Daniel is often seen as a naive artist, and yet repeatedly throughout his career, and you have to call it a career, he sees the initiative. And, and to me, as much as, you know, any rock hero, John Lennon or Ray Davis or whoever, Neil Young, Daniel saw his opportunities and seized it. And getting, in front of the MTV cameras and stealing the show. And I, and he did steal that show. And that was the kind of thing as a kid in the Texas panhandle who was getting the Austin Chronicle mailed to him by his big brother. Um, you know, I made my way to Amarillo to see that show and, and it was a big deal. And, and, um, and Daniel definitely, you know, that was my first exposure to Daniel Johnson. And the thing about Austin as an Austinite, I can say this, it's a pretty parochial town and getting that validation from MTV really, I mean, the Chronicle had already adopted Daniel, but, but that really put the cherry on top as far as the, the city adopting him. And, and there was none of the, you know, the Austin scene at the time was built around bands like the True Believers with Alejandro Escovedo and, and Zeitgeist that later became the Reavers and, and Glass Eye with Kathy McCarthy and these bands that that thought they might have a chance at MTV. And, and then they kind of, the biggest band in town, 
to the extent that they were here, but they were from here, was the butthole surfers who were sort of pariahs to the Chronicle because it was clear they were never going to be accepted on MTV, although ironically they, they ultimately did. But, but so Daniel's um, canniness is something that I've always found fascinating. And, you know, like reading discussions, I was reading Ira Robbins of Trouser Press reviews of, of Daniel's work preparing for the show and you know there's a little bit of hand wringing about oh you know his mental health and is this is this right to you know he, he had qualms or questions about this lionization of daniel johnson somebody who's obviously struggling with mental illness and to me you know that's sort of a recurring theme on the show we talk about so many casualties who share their musical gifts with the world and then pay this enormous price and and Daniel did pay a higher price than a lot of people, and his his mental difficulties were, you know, more extreme than a lot of other artists. But I don't really see Daniel as different than other artists, you know? I mean, he's obviously a powerful songwriter and, like you say, a gifted pianist. And then his visual art only improved over the decades. And so now he's, you know, to me, Don Van Vliet, Captain Beefheart's the only other rock artists I know of who's had a successful art career as Daniel Johnston. Maybe John Lennon sketches, but then he's, you know, John Lennon. So, you know, and so I'm, I'm just fascinated. Daniel's sort of this multi-talented figure. And yet, in a lot of ways, he's not functional enough to ha- to be seen as a careerist. And so, I don't know. I just find that theme fascinating. Did you struggle with that at all? Did you feel like, am I harming Daniel by bringing more attention to him? Or how much did you feel like you had to, to protect Daniel? Oh, I mean, not at all. <laughs> not <one laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think about it for a moment. Um, Daniel, you know, as I came to know, because I was privy to, you know, an insane amount of audio diaries and written diaries and things like that, and also, you know, became friends with Jeff Tartikoff. Daniel was the puppet master of his own career. He was very much driven like Dylan was driven when he invaded Greenwich village in the sixties and hit the folk scene. There was a lot of talented artists. I mean, we could replace, you know, the Reavers or Zeitgeist or Kathy McCarty or any of those bands with, you know, Dave Van Ronk or other uh, folk artists in the village. But, you know, just like Dylan just was better. So was Daniel, you know? Um, and he was not shy about it. He he was not that artist hiding in a garage, you know, painting and writing songs and asking people, hey, you know, what do you think? Uh, he knew he was great. He had the goods. He was prolific. He had this incredible body of work. And then he was driven to come up with a unique way, you know, outside of mainstream culture. Forget the MTV moment because that was just a, a great moment. But he really came up with his own... Uh, version of disseminating his art and getting it out into the world. And it was very unique. So, you know, what did he do? He would take those cassettes and he worked at McDonald's and he would put them, you know, usually it was like a hip musician in town or a cute girl. And he would put that in your hamburger French fry sack. Next thing you know, you got a tape, a handmade tape. It's like getting a little, a little love letter and you pop it in and I say, Oh my God, that guy did that. So that really worked. That spread real fast. And according to people, he would stand on the drag and hand it out. It's almost like a guy with a sandwich board. So he did that. And then the same thing with the art. You know, this guy put out thousands of pieces of art and got them all. I know people all around the world who had this art over the years. And how did they get it? Well, you know, he would trade them 
at the at the comic book store, and then people would come in and buy them. And he was already this little mythical character, and people picked up the art real cheap, and it just got out there and it spread. You know, he didn't wait for the gallerist to show up or the museum. He just put it out there. So that was kind of brilliant. And uh, he knew how to promote. You know, he would make uh, great handmade posters about the shows and promote those kind of things. And then, of course, you know, WFMU in Hoboken, I give more credit to for really breaking Daniel on more of a national level. Uh, you know, no doubt he conquered Austin. But that body of work he did really was before he got to Austin. It really was recorded in West Virginia. You know, he made he made a name in Austin. And then FMU in, New, in uh, Hoboken and uh, New Jersey and New York uh, broke it wide. And Daniel did incredible promos uh, for that. He did a one-hour uh, radio broadcast that, you know, I've called it, you know, the equal, if not better, than Orson Welles' uh, War of the Worlds. It's incredible. It you really know, it's is. A radio it's a drama. bonus track on the DVD, and I highly recommend anybody who hasn't watched all the bonus tracks on the DVD to do it. It's, it's an incredible bit of radio. Yeah, and if you go to the WFMU blog, the whole hour is up, and boy, what an entertaining hour of radio. Because, you know, Daniel's doing... Um, He's doing this persona that I call uh, Mr. Showbiz, you know, where you really get him in overdrive promoting his own career. And he's doing multiple voices and characters and overdubs on his cassettes. And it's really something. So anyway, for anyone listening to this, I recommend it to go to the FMU blog and check it out. So. Highly. And I want to jump in and get uh, play a song snippet so you can hear some Daniel. And we're going to hear first... Um, Daniel, to me, is primarily a songwriter. He's a great performer, but his songs also have this transferability and make great cover versions. So we're going to do pairings where we do Daniel's original and then a cover of it. And this uh, this one, first one is Rocket Ship by Daniel Johnson, and then we'll hear uh, Kathy McCarty's version. And that was uh, Daniel Johnson's version of Rocket Ship and Kathy McCarthy's cover version of that song. And and talk about Kathy a little bit. And and to me, it's like just a classic rock and roll story, the way Daniel comes to town, makes a name for himself, and swoops up one of the biggest uh, stars of the scene in Kathy McCarthy. And they, even given the uniqueness of Daniel Johnson's lifestyle, briefly, they're an item. Yeah, well, you know, Glass Eye at the time was, uh, you know, the hot Austin band and Daniel, you know, he admired them and zoned in on them. And she, she, uh, she dug him back. She was probably one of the first people to get those tapes. 
and she fell in love with uh, the artist first before she realized that what the person she was dealing with uh, was definitely difficult, let's just say. So um, that story is well told in the film. I think the, the, the better story is what happened with um, Daniel's best friend in the film um, and in real life, of course, uh, Dave Thornberry, uh, the poet from West Virginia, who was Daniel's art buddy. And uh, I love how ultimately Daniel um, couldn't have Kathy, but then his best friend ends up uh, marrying Kathy, and they're still together in Austin right now. So I think that's a beautiful love story. Uh, and this says a lot about Daniel and his unrequited love theme. And also, you know, Kathy goes on to record a full album of Daniel songs, the first person to do that in 1994. And, you know, like she says in the movie, she thinks that's her best work and the, and the thing she'll be remembered for it. And, you know, in the nineties, I think um, that album did kind of overshadow Daniel's work because he was in and out of mental institutions and, and had a pretty bad deal with Atlantic records that kind of buried him for a while. And, and, for me, I know playing Kathy McCarthy's version uh, was a great way to explain Daniel to people. Like you, you play these songs, and oh, this is a really good album. And then you tell them about Daniel, rather than so many times I would try to play him Daniel for people that just weren't prepared for the lo-fi sound. And and that's another thing I want to talk a little bit about is is Daniel's place in what became known as the lo-fi movement. Yeah, well, there's there's two conversations to be had. I mean, the, the whole the cover version thing is kind of amazing because though I personally prefer my Daniel Johnston raw and real, and I really enjoy listening to the stress cassettes more than the covers, it's amazing how many covers have been recorded and like you know in cafes literally next Friday night um, all around the world. You know, young people are covering Daniel Johnson right now. And we're talking it's in the thousands. So this is a real phenomenon uh, that's been going on not just since he died recently. It's been going on for a long time. And when you see so many great artists moved by Daniel, whether it was um, Sonic Boom of the Spaceman 3 or Jason Spaceman, uh, Spaceman 3 and Spiritualized, covering him early on, things like that, that really they zoned in on... Uh, you know, certain tracks like true love will find you in the end. Um, those songs are just so universal and great. They're, they're becoming very much like Woody Guthrie songs. Like it's part of the great American songbook. And that's what really, I think moves me. And it definitely introduces people, you know, I think Nick cave has recently just been covering Daniel. And I mean, the, the, the list is endless. Um, but there's not hundreds and hundreds of people around the world in cafes Friday night, to my knowledge, covering Nick Cave. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> what's interesting. Okay. So, you know, what can I tell you? I think it's great. These are, you know, often great artists uh, acknowledging another great artist, and it's lovely, and it keeps spreading. But, you know, Daniel's now finally taken his po proper place in that rare Mount Rushmore of super great artists that I've always said he was, uh, he belonged in, which of course is, you know, he's right up there with Dylan as a songwriter. He's right up there with Brian Wilson. He's right up there with Lou Reed, you know, and people thought I was insane for saying these things back then, <laughs> you know, but that's what I felt. So, uh, it took an independent voice an independent film to, to, 
to make that message and put it out there. Certainly Rolling Stone magazine and the New York times at the time was never going to tell you that. And, uh, you know, it was treated very much like Fulton's folly when we were making the film. So, you know, people thought we were absolutely insane for spending $1 million on Daniel Johnston. And, uh, I'm glad that I did. (laughs) So, (laughs) yes, uh, we are too. And, and, yeah, it's it's interesting that the the aversion to people to Daniel that some people have just because of the way the stress cassettes were originally presented. You know, it, it's low recorded on cassette. It's low fi quality. His he's you know a fairly erratic singer. Uh, the performance is very wildly in quality. You know, especially back in the day when we would trade tapes around town because Daniel would re-record these things sometimes, and you would have the same cassette, and you thought you had the same cassette, and then you'd hear somebody else play it, and you'd be like, "That's not the one. That's not that. You know, that's not Daniel." And then, then you hear it, and you're like, "Holy crap! He did this whole thing over," which is something that hadn't been done by a recording artists since the day of you know Edison, and and. Yeah, and anyway, it's just it's just been a fascinating thing to me to see the different reactions to Daniel based on how it's presented. And it's amazing how much having a documentary that's obviously a great film kind of overwhelms those objections. And so, you know, thank you for bringing Daniel to so many people. And and but the lo-fi, like he came along at a time when lo-fi was just beginning to be a thing where, where there were a few artists, Jandek and, and a few other people that were recording things at home and putting them out on cassette. And you had also a, a string of sort of rock artists who had burned out like Sid Barrett and, and Skip Spence and Moby Grape and Rocky Erickson. And then their recordings took on kind of this naive art quality in a way as people didn't know how much is Sid in control of his abilities. And, Daniel kind of was on the absolute cutting edge of that. And then, you know, along with Jad Fair, uh, who collaborated with him and who you've also documented in, in another great film that people probably haven't seen, but it's on DVD. You can still get it. Um, the Band Who Would Be King, I highly recommend it. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between Daniel and Jad Fair and the way Daniel was able to plug himself into this nationwide network of underground artists? Yeah, sure. I mean, we. I, I wanted to touch on the lo-fi thing just briefly. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Out. Yeah. Definitely. No, no, it's totally fine. I, I think lo-fi is interesting. In you know, it became a tag. You know, and people need tags. You know, you know, and genres and things like that. I don't think the medium is ever the message, so it was a little odd. But whatever. If that's what got him some ink, that was fine. But you know, he was a real innovator because, you know, unlike Springsteen, who you know, latched on early to the Tascam four-track cassette and made Nebraska, you know, Daniel topped that. Daniel went further. Daniel took just the standard cassette recorder, but he was an incredible innovator with it because he did overdubbing, you know, which you don't necessarily, are, you're not really able to do true overdubbing with two independent cassette decks. <laughs> so he picked up a lot of room ambience and things like that. And it's obviously... um he had one tiny microphone to plug in and uh, it didn't get in the way at all of, of those field recordings. And in in many ways he was sort of like a modern day self-documenting like Alan Lomax, you know, recording like Robert Johnson, who, you know, stood in a corner and made with mono, like a false stereo using the 
90 degrees of the walls. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Yeah. So, yeah, so Daniel did his own thing, and it had its own ambience and, and aesthetic. Um, and, you know, ba- like you mentioned, those tapes were dubbed, so you're getting, you know, second, sometimes third generation Daniel Johnston. And it definitely was like, you had a, I, I used to say you had to squint your ears through the hiss to hear the incredible piano playing and the incredible emotional songwriting. But that was part of the fun, you know? Um, now, you know, a lot of those masters have been bettered and they're up, they're up on all the streaming sites and you don't have as much of that problem. Uh, and I think those tapes are pretty goddamn listenable. I always thought they were. But I, I remember what you were saying with those early tapes, like listening on my cassette deck, how it was a little challenging, you know? And then, you know, it became a movement. Although to this day, I can't name another artist who's like remembered from the lo-fi movement. I, I certainly wouldn't put Jandek in that category. I'm a huge fan. Uh, Dan, Jandek had a real, real recorder and his album sounded amazing to me, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. But uh, it, 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 once again, it, it became part of the, the, the maverick self, you know, promoting myth of Daniel Johnson that he wasn't going to wait for a record company to sign him and promote him and have him, you know, all that stuff. You know, I mean, he did have a manager, but, you know, there was nothing to get in the way between you and him and getting his message and his music and his art into your hands, into your eyes, into your ears, you know? And I thought, and I thought that was amazing. So. Yeah, it absolutely is. And it's become, you know, artists like Ariel Pink in the 21st century and so many of the SoundCloud rappers and, and, doing it yourself bedroom artistry technology has advanced to a point where um you know there's a very thin line between professional studio recording and what you're doing in your bedroom and daniel's example uh i think has inspired a lot of people and 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 going on these trends but like the thing with daniel and his career and you know he he had his little breakthrough in austin with mtv and immediately has a breakdown like he starts hanging out with with the butthole surfers and anybody in town at the time, I remember when the, the compilation album that the Butthole Surfers put out that had Daniel on it, I can remember, you know, we were scared of the Butthole Surfers. They had this reputation and their music was heavy and dark and intense and, and everybody took acid to go to their shows. And, and I can remember, you know, seeing the biggest, scariest guy I'd ever seen. Uh, and the first time I went to a Butthole Surfers show going, oh, it was too scary for me to go backstage. You know, the scene backstage was so scary I had to leave. And so I'm like, terrified of these people and then here's this angelic naive figure daniel johnson associating with kibbe and company and it really scared me and 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 it and it quickly i don't know that you can blame gibby but i mean daniel taking acid at a, at a butthole surfer show clearly was not good for daniel i know my own experience with manic depression lsd is terrible uh for me and that seems to be a, a sort of a recurring cycle with daniel that every time he has a big breakthrough then there's a mental breakdown that follows it, like his trip to New York where he plays CBGBs and he's hanging out with Steve Shelley and he's recording with Kramer and recording with half of Sonic Youth. And then next thing you know, he's assaulting Steve Shelley. And and this, this pattern recurs all throughout. And how much do you feel like, what do you make of that connection, that recurring pattern in Daniel's life of, of success and then massive self-sabotage? Well, I mean, once again, he, he, he falls pretty clearly into this uh, tortured artist category. There's in, in the film I referenced this book I had read, uh, Kay Redfield Jameson's book uh, called Touched with Fire. 
And it chronicled all the great poets and painters and musicians and artists throughout history. And just, a, you know, not all, but a massive amount suffered from, at the time, it was you know, called manic depression. And that's what Daniel had. So, you know, according to the book, you know, they're, they're great works of art. They're Sistine chapels, whatever you want to call it. You know, they were painted during the, these manic high phases. And then there were these incredible lows where there was a lot of self-medication going on, depending on whatever century you were in and what, you, what was available. And that's, uh, and then you get a lot of suicides and things like that there. So, you know, Daniel fit into that, and that's just the way it was. Uh, he also chronicled it better than any of them. I mean, he, that was his other great subject outside of the unrequited love. I mean, you have songs like I Had Lost My Mind. You know, and he did all kinds of paintings about that. And he had, uh, you know, he had breakdowns actually in high school where um, everything was gone. And he slowly built himself back up and he chronicled all that. People don't remember that period. They only remember the butthole surfer period with the acid because he was more public at that point. But yeah, he was doing a lot of drugs. He, uh, he, wrote, he wrote songs, you know, he called them happy smokes. He loved weed. And uh, acid definitely wasn't the best thing. I'm, I... To this day, I, I don't blame Gibby. I don't even know if Gibby gave him the acid because he was messing around with a few people back then. But whatever happened, happened. You know, he was an adult, and he experimented, and it wasn't the right thing. But, yeah, he had a lot of bad phases where he was harmful to other people and harmful to himself. And that's when he became, you know, multiple times uh, institutionalized. And it was tragic and sad. You know, and as it is for anyone, whether an artist or someone who's not an artist, it's, it's horrible. But he did that. But at the same time, you know, it became a subject for him in his autobiographical writing, in his music and art, to write about. And that it's very moving. And, and oftentimes when he recovered, it was incredibly heroic, you know, to see how much he had to say. Because he'd been there, you know, and he was able to tell, he came back to tell about it. So... You know, I find that whole journey, the up and the downs, to be, you know, just a fascinating ride on this artist's career. It absolutely makes for compelling viewing in the film. And let's hear one of those gems that he brought back from the other side. This is True Love Will Find You in the End. And we'll first hear Daniel Johnson's version, and then we'll hear a little bit of Wilco's version. True love will find you in the end. You'll find out just who was your friend Don't be sad, I know you will True love will find you in the end Gonna find out who was your friend Don't be sad. And that was Wilco covering Daniel Johnson's True Love Will Find You in the End, preceded by Daniel's version. And that is another song that's been the entry point to Daniel for a lot of people because Wilco is an artist that isn't ginormous but has a really strong cult. And it's the power of it, and, and like you say, to me, 
Daniel's version is so untouchable. And yet it, there seems to be just this call that artists can't resist taking a stab at it because everybody thinks, oh, I can sing a little better than that, or I can, I can do it. And somehow it's approachable despite being such powerful art in a way that most of his contemporaries have not, you know, like I think Daniel's very unique in that, that he's one of the few artists of his generation who has been widely covered and whose songs have become standards. And that, you know, in the scope of this project where we're talking, I'm going to be talking to Irving Berlin's biographer in a couple of weeks. And, and it's, I'm sure there were people who would just laugh out loud if I compare Daniel Johnson to Irving Berlin, but to me, they're very much part of the same uh, pantheon of great American songwriters. And it's been inspiring to see, Daniel's acceptance growing and growing. And it was also very difficult for me to pick songs for this. I ultimately ended up picking the songs that meant the most to me, but the song I'm walking the cow, which was uh, the first song on the first Daniel Johnson. I, I got the Homestead record before I got um, any of the cassettes. And, and that was the first song on, on hi, how are you? And that was covered by Pearl jam. And, and, you know, it was very difficult not to pick that. So, uh, it, uh what of the covers of Daniel? Which ones do you think have had the most impact or meant the most to you? Well, you know, <laughs> for me personally, you know, once again, I go back to the earliest people who really found him first that were resonating to me, and that was, um, you know, Peter Tamber Sonic Boom of the Spaceman Three. I think his he has two versions of True Love Will Find You in the End, and they're amazing. Later on, Jason, his uh, ex-partner from Spaceman 3, Jason Spaceman. He also covered it in Spiritualized. He ended up covering about four or five Daniel songs, and they're all wonderful. So those those resonated more to me. You know, I was never a Pearl Jam fan. Um, you know, and it's great that it exposed Daniel. So, and there are obviously Pearl Jam fans out there. Um, but that wasn't my trip. Um, I wasn't even aware Wilco did <laughs> that song. It's, just so, it's amazing to me that people keep doing it. Um, but yeah, once again, the, that original version was recorded by Kramer and that's on the 1990 album. And that was the, in my opinion, the other masterpiece outside of the stress cassettes. You know, it's the only time Daniel has ever been truly great in a studio environment. And, uh, those songs became the core to the devil and Daniel Johnston. Um, you know, the theme of the film is, uh, one of his other um, most popular songs now, Some Things Last a Long Time, which people forget. You mentioned Jad Fair before, and we should probably talk about him. You know, Jad wrote Some Things Last a Long Time. That was a half-Japanese song. And Daniel uh, changed the music and came up with a very simple piano melody and then sang it beautifully. And now it's, you know, let's call it, put the word hit in parentheses for quotes. And it's probably the other big song that people now know. Of Daniels, but there's so many others, you know, to be discovered and covered. Many, many you already have, you know. And talking about him and Jad Fair, I mean, Jad Fair's, uh, you know, an iconoclastic artist who, you know, made an ideology of rejecting learning to play. You know, he 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 created his own thing, and over time, he his work did become a little bit more polished. But what it's to me, it's so unique. Another unique aspect of the Daniel Johnson story is that he successfully collaborates with somebody like Jad Fair, which, you know, you're always putting together these all-star combos of your favorite musicians, and so rarely do they click. What, what, what do you think it was about those two that allowed them to be good collaborators together? 
Well, it's funny. I, I literally just handed in these liner notes for the reissue of their album. The album when it came out was called Chad Fair and Daniel Johnston. Um, it's been retitled uh, over the years as It's Spooky, and it's fantastic, and Jad's the producer of it. Um, you know, a little context. So basically, when Daniel was on the rise, Jad was the king of the underground. Everyone looked at Jad. Now, Jad, you know, he emerged right at the same time as Patty Smith's uh, first self-released single. So Jad's really coming out of the punk era, but he was self-releasing, self-recording. And um, at the time, you know, him and his brother David didn't know how to play their instruments and they didn't let that get in the way. And then they found other musicians and they evolved and they eventually record this masterpiece, Charmed Life, which really put Jad and Half Japanese on top of the world. But he, you know, he gained a huge amount of respect, you know, from people like, for instance, Sonic Youth before Sonic Youth were popular. Jad was like the one everyone worshipped in the underground. And it was a small world. So Daniel found out about Jad, and there was a lot of similarities, because Jad, he wrote um, particularly this one album, a solo album uh, called Everyone Knew But Me. Uh, he wrote a suite of unrequited love songs about a girl named Amy. And Daniel really latched on to that. So he really wanted to meet Jad. And then Jad also fell in love with Hi, How Are You? So by the time they get to meet in New York during that crazy trip with Sonic Youth, you know, they hit it off. <laughs> and then Jad invited Daniel to collaborate. And, you know, I, I compare it to uh, like Dylan and Johnny Cash and their Nashville sessions. You know, it's just an incredible record. And um, anyway, Joyful Noise is putting that out in April. And uh, I just wrote like the war and peace of liner notes <laughs> on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Jab was the man. And, um, you know, if Daniel was the greatest songwriter of our generation of unrequited love songs, I would argue that Jad was the best writer of love songs. You know, he wrote uh, Miracles Happen Every Day, which, you know, if you and I talked about it enough and people listen to this podcast could catch on just like true love will find you in the end. I think everybody loves a good love song, you know, and I think Jad did it. So, um, but yeah, Jad's also, once again, he, he's the co-writer of something's last a long time. And I think people need to be reminded of that, that, that that's a collaboration. So. Yeah. And well, here, that's the last song I'm going to pick because, uh, my daughter's favorite song is Lana Del Rey's cover of that. So I, I'm kind of giving that away early, but um, we'll, we'll get there. But Daniel, so Daniel's doing these things, you know, despite his illness and despite recurring stints in mental homes and recurring times when he has to go back to live with his parents, he continues to make these moves. There's a trip to New York. Then there's another trip to Maryland to record with Jad Fair. Um, and, Meanwhile, the, this whole time, Jeff Tartikoff, you know, Je he was Jeff wasn't Daniel's first manager. The first manager, whose name I'm blanking on, you know, Daniel assaulted Randy Randy time. Kemper. Randy <laughs> Kemper, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, Randy definitely paid a big price for having uh, tried to help Daniel. And then Jeff, you know, like Kathy McCarthy says in the movie, that that this is kind of the real tragedy of the Daniel Johnson story is that that Jeff works for almost a decade, like seven, eight years putting out the tapes, endlessly promoting Daniel's songs to other bands to get covers, working with record labels, and right on the verge, you know, this 
nirvana happens and there's this uh, sudden you know suddenly the the capitalist culture smells money and and it's been building for a long time there have been waves of bands getting bigger and bigger coming out of the underground but finally nirvana breaks so big even the stupidest record executive can't ignore it and kurt cobain's going around wearing the hi how are you t-shirt that journalist everett true gave to daniel i mean gave to to cobain and Tartikoff's riff on the T-shirt, and people want to know about the T-shirt. People want to talk to the T-shirt. People want to have the T-shirt. It's so classic, and really gets to the kind of paradox of that kind of fame. I mean, Cobain was a sensitive artist and a great talent, and he genuinely loved Daniel's music and was making kind of a political statement. And it was part of what Cobain did. I mean, it wasn't just Daniel that he promoted. He also put the Meat Puppets on, you know, MTV unplugged and really worked very hard to promote what he saw as his elders in the scene. I mean, the only people comparable to Cobain in that regard to me are like Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones and Merle Haggard or somebody who's obsessively saying, hey, have you heard about this guy? You know, And, and yet the people that are watching Cobain and have learned about Nirvana on MTV – you know, there's a big disconnect between that and Daniel Johnson. There's many a drip between the lip and cup. And but Tartikoff capitalizes on this, negotiates this what he says is, you know, the best deal ever with Electra Records, but Atlantic Records is also interested. And then gets him right to the edge and then Daniel fires him. You know, what what's your takeaway from that in the end? No good deed goes unpunished? Well, it was once again tragic and sad, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> with, in, you know. But there's also a lot of humor in the whole thing as well. But uh, that broke my heart. Um, you know, you, let's touch on Cobain for a brief moment. You know, let's give him a little credit for having incredible taste. You know, in his diaries that have been published, he has these lists, and right there on that list of favorite artists, which are pretty diverse, you know, is Daniel Johnston and Jad Fair half Japanese. He also had Jad Fair and half Japanese open the In Utero tour. I don't know if you're aware of that, which I attended. So he was a real booster. And, you know, he loved the Vaseline. He loved the meat puppets. He was, you know, he was, he was great at sharing his love, K records, you know, and be happening, things like that. So that was great. Um, and it was a, a real boon for Daniel Daniel, of course, doesn't even know who Nirvana or Kurt Cobain is. You know, he, he was not well when that all went down. He was in the mental hospital. So that just tells you about his state of mind. You know, he wasn't tuned to the radio. He didn't know what that new radio format even was. You know, that wasn't what he was about. He, if he had access to music, it was 100% Beatles, Beatles bootlegs, you know, Beatles solo albums. <laughs> That's what he was <laughs> listening to. I, I promise you that. Um, so anyway, when that, you know, when Tartikoff got fired, obviously, you know, I wasn't making the film at that point, but I've still been tracking the story really closely for years and it broke my heart. And, uh, I'm a huge fan of Woody Allen's film, uh, Broadway, Danny Rose. And I just saw the parallels. I was like, Oh my God, you know, Daniel, who at that point in time was overweight, was very much like. Nicopolo Forte, the actor yes. in Broadway, Danny Rose, and then Tartikoff, uncannily, this little Jewish guy from Texas, you know, with the glasses and and the schnozzola, you know, he looks so much like Woody Allen and <laughs> the character Danny Rose, and that's what happened. You know, Nicopolo Forte sees a brighter, shinier manager who could maybe make more opportunities for him, and he fires 
Danny Rose, who loved him, him and loved his parakeet axe and his balloon folders more than anybody. I mean, every, we all wish we had a manager like Broadway Danny Rose, and that's what Tartakov really was. And, you know, I was very moved by that. So I sort of filed in my brain for the future that someday I'll be able to make a scene, make a riff on that. And then Kathy McCarty joined me on that, and we made a fantastic scene. I love that scene. It breaks my heart. That's beautiful. Um, and then, yeah, and then Woody, uh, you know, who's a big fan of documentaries, um, you know, I got the phone call one day. I was actually in Home Depot, and the phone rang, and I was waiting for permission because I didn't know what I would do if that scene got killed, you know. And he gave permission, and it was great. And that's why that, it's like a minute of Danny Rose in the film cut to Daniel Johnston's story, you know, told 100% you know, sincerely, but with tongue in cheek by Kathy McCarty. And, you know, she has a great sense of humor. Uh, I like to think I do too. So we had a lot of fun with that scene, you know, but, uh, it's, it, it, it was tragic. Daniel got thrown overboard. I mean, excuse me, Tartikoff got thrown overboard. And, and do you feel like yeah. it, it was, you know, cause Atlantic made a pretty good faith effort. They got Paul Leary, the butthole surfers to produce and, and the fun album, I don't think you can blame Paul or Atlantic for any failings um, in fun. I, I like fun. I think it's a really good record. And if you like Daniel Johnson, definitely check it out. I don't think it's his, one of his absolute masterpieces, but it's definitely got some great songs on it. And I think the production on it uh, is excellent and very sympathetic. But, you know, like you point out in the movie, it, it sells 5,800 records, one of the worst selling records in the catalog. Do you feel like it would have made any difference had he been on Electra with the deal that, you know, was a long-term deal and had all, all these guarantees to protect him? Or do you think that was just another, Daniel was just another indie artist who was sort of chewed up and spat out by the big conglomerates in that period? Well, you know, listen, it's all subjective, but I do not like fun and didn't like it then and I don't like it now. But I also believe it was created by at least Paul with the best of intentions. You know, Daniel doesn't play any instruments on the album. They, Paul and other musicians do. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. Uh, it's Daniel obvious. Yeah. Sing, yeah. Daniel's singing is, you know, all over the place on that, on that record. Are the songs great? Absolutely. And I've always pointed people to the stress cassette versions of those exact same songs. So if you are, you know, you could stream it now. It's a lot easier. If you listen to Frankenstein love, you will get better versions of all those great songs. And if you listen to live at South by Southwest, all, you know, both stress cassettes, you'll get the other batch of those songs. They all ended up on fun, much, much better superior versions of Daniel playing. And then even on Frankenstein love, which I really uh, love is the um, Daniel plays two Texas shows. That was the extent of that tour. And it's the only thing you'll get to hear him playing, um, Fender Rhodes piano, and that's incredible. Like when you talk about Walking the Cow, for instance, or Hey Joe, when you hear it even outside of the chord organ that he's famous for, and you hear it on Fender Rhodes, wow, that's really something. So um, that's my two cents on fun. Um, but it really, you know, I guess, you know, you sort of touched upon this. It's like people at that time. We're like, how, you know, how do we clean up Daniel Johnston and make him palatable for the masses? I think that was the thinking behind yeah. some of the misguided uh, A&R people at Atlantic, a guy named Yves Bouvet. You know, 
they had the best of intentions. On paper, it made sense, but it didn't make sense to me personally. Because once again, I want my art brute to still be brute. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how to say it. Um, and I still, and I think now over time, once again, we're seeing all these people now covering Daniel and it's not just because of Wilco and Pearl Jam. They are going back to those original things. And I think people have always been thirsty for something they didn't even know they were thirsty for this authentic, real emotional, you know, bloodletting or, 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 you know, let's not overlook all the incredible humor, the, the wonderful comic turns of phrase that Daniel has in all his songs. I think that's what's cutting through right now. People, you know, are finally discovering that there's something else out there. And when they get it, when, you know, maybe it's the internet, I don't know, but they're all of a sudden, you know, no one's making them listen to this and making them, you know, show up in these cafes and start covering Daniel right now. They're just all doing it. It's all young people, which is great. And let's um, cue up our final song. This is a song we've discussed already. Some Things Last a Long Time, Words by Jad Fair, music rewritten by Daniel Johnson. And we'll hold Daniel Johnson's version. And then we'll hear Lana Del Rey's version, which I didn't even know existed. My daughter enjoyed listening to Lana Del Rey, so I'm searching on YouTube for songs. And I come across this and uh, it immediately became her favorite Lana Del Rey song. And so that was a way I could introduce my five-year-old daughter to Daniel Johnston. So this is uh, Daniel Johnston first doing Some Things Last a Long Time and then Lana Del Rey. Lana Del Rey covering Jad Fair and Daniel Johnson. Some things last a long time, preceded by Daniel's version. And so the movie comes out and is a big success. What happened to Daniel after the movie? What's the rest of the story? Well, you know, Henry Rosenthal, my producer, who um, who paid for the film, um, we had a goal. You know, we we didn't, we were worried what's going to happen to Daniel if his elderly parents die. Will he end up homeless? Who would take care of this guy? So, you know, that was one of the goals of the film, like to hopefully, you know, put Daniel on the map and maybe uh, money would come in. And that's what happened. Um, You know, instantly the Whitney Biennial uh, put his art in, uh, which was unheard of at the time. (laughs) You know, people were blown away. We galleries around the world started showing his art and it started going for larger sums. Uh, and then he started touring the world and he was greeted all over the world. I mean, you know, the guy's like literally touring in Africa, uh, South America, Mexico, you know, all over Europe, Japan. And he's greeted the way he's supposed to be greeted. It's like when, uh, 
when Pharaoh Sanders shows up, you know, or great American jazz artists, he's treated there with the love and respect that you've, you know, I always imagined for him, you know, and particularly the French, you know, who of course always loved uh, the Velvet Underground. You know, the French get it. You know, the French love Billy Childish. They get it, you know. Uh, Daniel's that stature, and then he, you know, made a lot of money, and all kinds of crazy licensing deals came in, and, you know, Apple started using his music to uh, sell computers, um, T-shirts, sneakers. There's even now a, a best-selling uh, welcome mat with the Hi, How Are You um, uh, frog, <laughs> as you, which is kind of genius, I have to say. Yes. Um, it never ends. Uh, he's a juggernaut. You know, uh, the soundtrack to uh, the Hollywood movie Where the Wild Things Are. You know, you've got Karen O from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah singing uh, on that as the lead song, the opening song for that movie, things like that. So, yeah, Daniel ended up uh, in, in pretty good shape financially, which was great. And he, he was able to buy a, a house, or I should say his parents built him an identical house in their backyard. And then he had his own studio. And then, you know, the last time I saw him, it was incredible. He came to the Hollywood Bowl, and he was the opening act for uh, a double bill with uh, Neutral Milk Hotel. Another artist, uh, band I love, and uh, they sold out the bowl. You know, and it was significant for Daniel, who's the world's biggest Beatles fan. Of course, the Beatles played the Hollywood Bowl and have that album there. And when he, you know, played, he was in very bad shape. He had a walker, and he was bent over pretty much like ninety degrees, <laughs> and you know, he was shaking like a leaf at the microphone. He wasn't able to play his guitar anymore. And he was backed by some pickup band, which is what he'd been doing pretty much Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley style. But, you know, these kids all knew his songs and they backed him. And then at the very end, you know, he sang True Love Will Find You in the end. And wow, uh, there's a great old movie called Pride of the Yankees about Lou Gehrig and his last visit to Yankee Stadium. And it's like a famous movie that makes people cry. And like I tell you, there was not a dry eye in the house. This guy got a standing ovation at the Hollywood Bowl as he walked off, hobbled off. And it was unbelievable. And uh, next to me was some, you know, young couple, uh, college age. And the girl was like nudging her boyfriend and I overheard her. And she's like, you know, this is like on my bucket list. She was like shaking as she saw Daniel Johnston. It was like that that big um and the end of the story is really nice i go backstage which is the only way i saw daniel over the years and uh you know he said to me that he'd watched the film you know countless times and i appreciated that and he thanked me and he said to me you know now jeff i'm a half millionaire that's what he said to me <laughs> so i i felt pretty good about that yeah, that's quite an accomplishment. And another thing, watching the bonus material on the DVD, when Daniel first sees the film and responds to you, he's really emphasizing the humor and how much he appreciates that you kept the humor in. And that, you know, this is a heavy story. It's about great art and, and madness and great suffering, you know, and you can see, like, the scene when his father's crying and recounting, you know, his near-death experience because Daniel tried to crash their plane and did force him to crash land. You know, so it's it's this heavy film, but it's never it's never heavy. It's always light. It's always funny. How hard did you have to work 
to keep that balance? And, you know, was the humor just there and it was easy to bring out or did you really have to find yourself, you know, putting a thumb on the scales to keep it humorous? Well, there was like two things going on. I mean, I, I, I brought it up before when we were talking, uh, you know, anyone who's missed the humor in Daniel has just missed Daniel. All right. I mean, it's, it's in the songs. It's incredible. The guys brought so many great laughs and so many smiles to my face. And I just turned my 17 year old son on to him recently. And, you know, we're driving around in the car and he's hearing this stuff for the first time. And he's just absolutely cracking up because Daniel is truly funny, you know, and so were the Beatles. They were funny. You know, that's something that's been lost in songwriters so over the years. I don't know why, um, <laughs> but hey, you know, but it, it should, I hope it comes back. So I always loved Daniel's humor. He, you know, I, him and I talked all about it. We had, a, you know, a lot of good times riffing on all kinds of, you know, we're pretty much the same age. And, you know, even though he was in West Virginia, he was a pop culture junkie. And, you know, I saw, I found drawings that he did of Woody Allen. You know, he was totally aware of all kinds of things. So, um, you know, I just felt like the film is a tragedy, but it's the comic and tragic masks and humor is such a big part of the story. And I, love humor and I wanted to flex those muscles on the film as well and we just sort of collaborated and it just found it it found its way and obviously the heavy stuff is heavy <laughs> but yeah there's a lot of lightness around it and uh, you know when he died there was a memorial screening in San Fran and I flew up and watched the film probably for the first time in easily over a decade with, with the producer Henry Rosenthal and uh, we were we had such a good time. We we were laughing our ass off. We just Daniel just makes us smile. <laughs> so um, it was it was fun for me to see how it how it held up and that you know listening to an audience uh, you know laugh at all the marks <laughs> and all the spots we think are funny. So well, the the film is a delight and and. I, I would call it a masterpiece, and DYR calls it a masterpiece. And uh, the guest is Jeff Fertzig. The film is The Devil, Devil and Daniel Johnson. Jeff, thanks so much for coming on the show, and, and hope to have you back again. Oh, man. Nate, thank you so much, man. Such a pleasure. Uh, the, show's, the show's great. Love, uh, you know, how, how wide your topics spread. I mean, uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, that was something else. <laughs> well, thank you. So. Thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, trying to learn about opera and electronic dance music at the same time now, so <laughs> watch out. <laughs> Well, good thanks, luck. Jeff. All right. Uh, yeah, All right. thanks so Bye-bye. much. Bye-bye. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Nate will be back next week with Gary Giddens, author of the definitive Bing Crosby biographies, A Pocket Full of Dreams, and Swinging on a Star, to discuss the biggest star and arguably greatest pop singer of the 1930s and 40s and his beginnings as a 1920s jazz hero. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The Devil and Daniel Johnston is available for streaming on Amazon Prime, Vudu, YouTube, and Google Play Movies. 
Please support the show by ordering it on DVD via the link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. Thank you.